Hi, I'm Andrew. Welcome to the Reviewer 2 Dive Geoengineering podcast. I'm here today with Gabrielle Weil. Welcome to the show, Gabrielle. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, no worries. Thank you for coming on. And if you could start by introducing the title of your paper so that we all know what to expect, that'd be great. Sure. It is Global Climate Governance in 3D, Mainstreaming Geoengineering Within a Unified Framework. Okay. So where will people find that paper? Uh, so it's published in the University of Pittsburgh Law Review. You can find it on their website. It's also up on SR, SSRN. So if you just Google the title, it should, should come up pretty easily. Yeah, we'll have the title in the description. So or we'll have the link to the, the paper in the description. So we'll be able to give people uh, the information that they need to find your paper as always. So if you're a listener and you haven't realized that uh, we've got all the papers linked and have a look back because we tend to give people what we think is a pretty good uh, summary of the most interesting papers that come out in the geoengineering literature. We're always pretty keen to make sure that we're on the ball. We're covering papers that you'll want to hear most about and in most detail. Also, as a, a little aside, never normally bother asking about this or normally never normally remember it, but do subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you're listening to. Apparently, Apple is most common, although we do all our promotion on Spotify. I don't quite know we're why are we so popular on Apple? Perhaps it's uh, used a lot by clever board people who want to hear about science. But hey, that uh, isn't something that my audience discovery tools give me much information about. So um, you've published in the University of Pittsburgh Law Review. Is that a journal that's only for people who are at the University of Pittsburgh or is it an open journal? Anyone can publish it? Yeah. So the way law reviews work is that you submit to a bunch of journals at once and they're concurrently reviewed. And then you get an offer from one and often often you trade up. But it's a very different process from the sort of peer-reviewed scientific publishing world. But but every law school has a what's called a flagship law review. Then they also have specialty journals, but they generally publish scholarship from folks outside, mostly outside scholars. Well, that, I mean, that's fascinating. I mean, we spend quite a bit of time looking at the academic process here because this podcast is very much aimed at working academics. Um, and it's not to so say we don't try and serve a more general audience, but our focus is very much on, on people who are actively working as academics. So talk us through that, because I've published in a law review journal before, but I had no idea that I was supposed to be submitting it to multiple journals at the same time. So tell, tell me about that. Process. So I, it might be different in Europe. So there are more peer-reviewed legal journals in Europe, but in the U.S., almost all law reviews are student edited, and there's a sort of bulk submission process. And, you, you know, it's not exclusive submission, and, and a lot of journals won't even read your paper until you get an offer from someone else, and you put in what's called an expedite request. So you get an offer, and you have, you know, a few weeks before you have... So they, they wait for everyone else to do the work. Uh-huh. Trying to steal all the papers. Yeah, like like every system for academic publishing, it is flawed in various ways. I don't have a strong view on whether it's more or less flawed than than alternative models. I hear lots of complaints about people who deal with the peer review process, so I, I don't have a strong view on which is better. But it is a strange process. That is quite weird. So I'll look out for that. So maybe I, I should have been trading up on my law articles, but never seen. I've never realised I could do that, let alone. I mean, I guess you have to be bothered as well. Like, I mean, I'm quite lazy, so I probably wouldn't trade up anyway, but I probably should probably should have done if it was possible. Okay, so do you want to give us a start by giving us a kind of one or two sentence summary of the paper without going too far off piste? 
Sure. So I'd say there's there's two big points I want to make. One is that geoengineering isn't really viable as a conceptual category. It sort of bundles together multiple or three different dimensions on which climate interventions vary. And there's no there's no one thing you can pick out as what it, what it means by geoengineering. And it's not just you know solar radiation management versus just things that have to do with carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gases. And the other is that is that you know, there's benefits to be to be reaped from having linkage between our, our conventional mitigation governance framework and governance of, of what I would call what I would call high leverage solar radiation management, which is the most controversial bucket that commonly gets lumped under geoengineering. And that that having having those under the same governance framework would open up opportunities to to use governance of, of high leverage solar radiation management. To, to accelerate cooperation on, on conventional mitigation. Okay, well, let me just challenge you there because, I mean, for me, geoengineering isn't always what's pretty simple. It's deliberately modifying the fire. Mm-hmm. So, so the deliberate, uh, I, I think the, the deliberate angle is less important than other other people. So the primacy of effect matters as well. If you're chopping down a tree because you don't like trees, then... The fact that you're manipulating the climate by allowing the carbon that was in the tree to enter the atmosphere is, is a secondary purpose. So I know it's a bit sketchy and hazy getting into massive intent because you're trying to improve, trying to prove people's will and intentions and all kind of airy fairy things that exist only in their head. But I think at large scale, it's pretty obvious. No one's going to be squirting sulfur into the stratosphere because it looks pretty. They're going to be doing it to try and change the climate, right? So I think that's a fairly cut and dried thing. And, and I don't have a problem with lumping CDR and SRM together because, you know, this podcast covers both. We view them as two sides of the same coin. I always have done. You know, they fit together from a policy point of view. They might have different characteristics, but they are both ways of changing the climate. They both require governance in their own different ways. They're both more cost. Uh, and, they're, and they're both public. They are used to manipulate the climate rather than for co-benefits, right? So that to me is a fairly simple framing of the issue but you're saying that things split three ways and you're looking at things in a different way in terms of the speed of response the leverage and grouping other things in the geoengineering if i'm right is that is that do i correctly understand my easy recollection of your paper from when i read it a few weeks ago sure so what what i'm saying first of all i don't think deliberateness from a governance perspective i don't it's not clear to me why we should care whether Interventions are undertaken deliberately to alter the climate or for some other reason. I think you should care about what the effects are. And then when you look at those, there's there's these three different dimensions on which they vary. So there, there's the solaration management versus greenhouse gases, and that means a different pattern of climate effects. There's there's duration of the intervention, so how long, how long it lasts, and and there's the, the leverage, so sort of the ratio of the of the resources required to deploy it to what it's what the magnitude of the climate impacts are going to be. And so... Okay, so uh, run me past those in, in a bit more depth. The first one I particularly had trouble with. It, do you just want me to unpack the, the solar radiation management versus uh, carbon greenhouse gas? Different mechanisms of action. Mm-hmm. But let's say, for example, you've got an additional method that you'd like to consider, like marine cloud brightening. How does your framework help us understand new methods that might be developed? Right. So marine cloud brightening is sort of uh, is sort of in well, marine cloud, cloud brightening, I would say, is is under falls under solaration management. So it's not just stratospheric aerosol injection. It's anything that's altering. Yes, sorry, I was, uh, that, 
yeah, you're, you're quite right there. I actually meant cirrus cloud thinning. Right. So cirrus cloud thinning is in this sort of weird space that it shares some features of of greenhouse gases, of greenhouse gases, and some features of of solar radiation management because it's it it's it's not globally dispersed in the way greenhouse gases are. But it's it's playing the same role in terms of affecting how much radiation leaks back out, how much infrared radiation leaks back out into space. So it's 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 playing more of a greenhouse gas like role. So I think I think you are pointing out that that it's not a total binary. On the other two dimensions are actually continuums. So so that's I don't think that's really a problem for my story. But it, but yes, uh, serious cloud fitting is sort of an oddball that doesn't doesn't quite fit into either of those two buckets. Okay, so what the first one that you're describing as a dimension is so solar radiation management, which acts on income radiation and it's relatively short acting typically. And then you've got well no, I, I don't wanna I don't wanna include the duration there. So in principle you could have very okay. long solar radiation management, you know space mirrors, for example. Right. Right. And, and so, so your your first dimension is more like a Kind of just a boolean is it srm or is it cdr is that is that what you're saying right with the with the qualifier that there are there is serious cloud thinning and potentially other things that don't fit quite into one category or the other okay so primarily you're looking at solar radiation management acts of inbound radiation carbon dioxide or greenhouse gas removal that acts on outbound radiation to boolean as opposed to continuum okay right and then your, your, your second one's Duration of action and leverage. Is that correct? Or did mm -hmm. I, yeah. Did I get okay. So, duration of action, there's a bit more of an overlap there, isn't it? So, if you take your fastest acting greenhouse gases, then they will, or your fasting, fastest acting greenhouse gas adjusting methodologies, because obviously you get things like water that rains out in a few days, so it's a pretty fast equilibrium, right? But you, you don't really adjust water as part of the greenhouse gas removing though, though it is a greenhouse gas but if you get something like methane for example if you were to geoengineer methane and something come up with some ideas for doing exactly that then you'd start to affect methane in the kind of time scale that you would also be looking at adjusting solar radiation management so your your slowest and most laggardly aerosols would probably be falling out around the same sort of time as your Methane geoengineering started to climb, right? So there is a bit of an overlap between SRM and greenhouse gas removal on the time scale side of things, right? Right. So I want to distinguish duration from what you might call promptness. So a feature of a lot of solar radiation management techniques is that they can act much faster than efforts to abate emissions or or to remove carbon in terms of, of having an immediate impact on the climate. So I would put that more in the first bucket, but duration is basically what I mean is once deployed, how long it lasts. And that does range from you know days or weeks on the one end to centuries or even millennia on the other, and I would say there is a large overlap in the distributions between you know greenhouse gas interventions and solar radiation management interventions in terms of well, duration. Consider space mirrors. I felt I was stretching a point to try and find a continuum in terms of duration because there really isn't much of an overlap between any SRM technique and any greenhouse gas removal technique. So. How important or relevant is the duration axis in terms of grouping these interventions together? Or do you see them as basically being bimodal distribution where there's very little overlap between the two fields? 
So I think all you all the, the real the real point I want to make here is that when you when you look at the governance of any particular intervention, you want to pay attention to where they fall on each of these three axes. And and the fact is that there's not a one to one relationship between whether something uh, is 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 intervening in terms of you know greenhouse gases or or albedo, right? And and how long it lasts. And we should just pay attention to those independently of each other. Okay. The final one is leverage. So carbon dioxide removal. You have to drag each atom of carbon out of the atmosphere. But with stoner radiation management, your little shiny ball of sulfate will keep being shiny for several years, or a couple of years at least, until it falls out of the sky, and then you lose your effect. So the stoner radiation management is a lot more leverage than it is the carbon dioxide removal. Well, I would say stratospheric... I would say stratospheric aerosol injection is much more highly leveraged. There are low leverage forms of solar radiation management. So, for instance, cool roofs, white roofs, I would say are solar radiation management. They're alteration of the Earth's surface albedo, um, but they're not highly leveraged. You know, we don't we don't have as much of a cost estimate on what space based, uh, you know, space mirrors would cost, but those would probably be, be much lower leverage than stratospheric aerosol injection because of how expensive it would be to get to get the reflective material into space. So I, I do think there's a clear, uh, you know, we tend to think of solar radiation management as, as being high leverage because the most commonly discussed intervention, stratospheric aerosol injection is high leverage, but I don't think that's an inherent feature of uh, of solar radiation management. Okay, so to, to put this crudely in kind of cartoonish terms, Dr. Evil could use solar radiation management um, but you would not get Dr. Evil doing anything with cool roofs because it wouldn't suit his evil plan. There's just not enough leverage that can be obtained from cool roofs to make it worthwhile. Is that right? Well, except that I want to say the cool roofs are solar radiation management. They're just low leverage solar radiation management. Uh, yeah, I get I get your point. What I'm saying is that the, the issue with leverage is to what extent Dr. Evil might make use of the technique, right? Well, that's 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 the downside of high leverage. I think the upside is that it's got you know sort of more favorable cost benefit ratio. In, in principle, you know, leverage is a good thing that we can achieve our objectives at lower cost. It does make you know. I think there are there are other risks that come along with leverage, but I don't think leverage is a pure bad. Okay, I'm not saying it is because I mean, obviously one of the major problems with carbon dioxide removal is that it's so damn expensive and therefore. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to do by right. effective scale. So, and it would be great if there were a higher leverage way to remove to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. If we could come up with one, you know, that was that was safe, it would be great. Okay, I mean this 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 framework. I, I guess a lot of people will be looking at this and thinking, well, so what? I mean, you're just describing the bleeding obvious here, and a lot of scholarship. I mean, you know, that's not necessarily a fault because, for example, Isaac Newton did quite well out of that malarkey. He described the bleeding obvious, apples fall to the ground, you know, things heavy are hard to shove, but did it in a way that formalised it and made it useful and made it calculable. And we, we use Newtonian frameworks for pretty much everything that doesn't involve light speed and black holes, quantum physics these days, right? So it's not a bad thing that he formalised it, but I think some people might be a bit sort of underwhelmed thinking, well, duh, we knew all of that. So... Can you give me an idea of how you think this framework can be applied and either to give a more structural approach to considering these techniques or perhaps as an alternative to show how 
this framework can also ingest things which are perhaps not geoengineering or geoengineering alike that yeah. would then help us consider how to deal with these new toys in a way that makes them feel more familiar to us. Right. So, so I think the main point I want to make by spelling out these three dimensions is it doesn't make sense to have a, a separate silo for, for geoengineering that's different from conventional mitigation because it's unclear sort of which of the, you know, if, if you just want to say you draw the line at acceleration management versus versus things that affect greenhouse gases, then you'd have to treat white roofs as if they were this sort of scary geoengineering intervention, which basically no one thinks, right? No one thinks we need a global moratorium on people painting their, their roofs white, right? And so th that example was useful to, to, to show up that it's 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 really these, these that we're most worried about in terms of having different governance regime for is high leverage, particularly short, relatively short duration solar radiation management. So that's what stratospheric aerosol that, that's sort of on one pole, what stratospheric aerosol injection is, and then say shutting down a coal plant and replacing it with with solar panels or something. That's the sort of purest mitigation. On the other hand, but we've got we've got different interventions that vary along each of these three dimensions in, independently, and we want a governance framework that's able to to treat each of those dimensions on its own terms and not and not have that siloed off. And so I think the first governance implication here is that we just want to have one global climate governance framework and if we're you know if, if some interventions are seen as, as purely benign that's fine you want to create incentives for for, for countries to, to engage in those more and, and if others are are more mixed or, or even troubling then we're going to have different different ways of taking those on board uh, different 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 incentive structures maybe restrictions on on the conditions under which certain of them can be deployed but you need to look at all three of those dimensions to know what what kind of policy response you want okay so you're drawing up what you might call a kind of state space for geoengineering and then your point being that depending on how the state space is drawn which is somewhat arbitrary then there might be activities which are low leverage and long duration not geoengineering that still kind of get caught by your approach because you are drawing it in a way to catch the slowest kind of enhanced weathering and then you find that that overlaps abatement in terms of leverage and duration is that is that what you were saying right I, and mine isn't a framework for geoengineering i would say it's a, a framework for any you know human activities that affect the climate you know including i would say we've been intervening so so this is this is where you know my skepticism of the sort of deliberateness comes in. I think we've been intervening on the climate for centuries, right? And so we shouldn't treat geoengineering like it's this new thing that we're talking about intervening on the climate system. We've been doing that sort of inadvertently through our economic activities for centuries. And so we should just treat these as interventions that have different features and different effects, and we should pay attention to what those effects are, and our governance regime should be responsive to them. What I'm asking is when the box is drawn in that way, so as to completely encapsulate all of CDR and all of SRM, do we then end up in a situation where, by default, we are catching a little bit of the tail of something else? So there is no way in your framework, or in perhaps any framework, if you're describing a system for analysing frameworks, then that isolate your engineering from governance. So look, it is distinctly the other things that we might choose to govern and we're going to govern it as so, or, or are you saying that the 
the box that you draw around geoengineering inevitably and always encompasses a bunch of things which are not. I think if you do emphasize this deliberateness aspect that I, I don't think is analytically that useful, that you can try to draw a box around geoengineering, I just don't think it's useful from governance perspective. I think what we care about from governance perspective are these three dimensions. And so if but if, if you if you try any, any sort of line you try to draw between conventional mitigation and and these other interventions that you might want to call geoengineering is going to be arbitrary and and not that useful from a governance perspective. And so I think we just want to, for any particular intervention, intervention, develop a policy and governance response to it that sort of takes on board where it falls along each of these three dimensions. So I'm not totally sure if that answers your question, but is there a way of drawing the box around? geoengineering in a way that does not catch the toes or the tail or the end of the nose of other aspects of human behavior that would fall into your governance framework because the consequences of that are quite significant so either you might have geoengineering as its own thing sui generis there's nothing else like it we look at it in and of itself and an isolated thing and we don't need to cross apply rules from other fields into geoengineering nor out of geoengineering. In the other alternative, we might say, well, actually, geoengineering is very much like this and very much like that and very much like the other. And therefore, we might tighten governance framework on everything that's encompassed within the box in order to govern geoengineering effectively. So I won't say it's impossible to come up with a definition of geoengineering that that silos it off from the rest of climate governance. I just think that is not the most effective way to govern that we should be governing, you know, interventions on the climate, broadly speaking, and that includes greenhouse gas emissions, that includes conventional efforts to abate emissions. And and so I think from whatever, from, from like what we're actually trying to achieve, I think that's what makes the most sense. I think in practice, governance, to the extent that we're governing geoengineering at all, it is be tr- being treated as a separate silo, and I think that's a mistake. Okay. So can you give an, as, as an example of the kind of thing that you think will end up getting put in your box that is not geoengineering? What kind of human activities are going to be caught by the way you're defining this governance framework? Oh, so in my definition, anything that affects the climate system would fall under under a, a sort of unified climate governance framework. So, so like I said, replacing you know, a coal plant with, with, with solar panels, right? The most conventional form of, of mitigation, right? That, that would still be an intervention on the climate. Now, we might, we might think it's a benign intervention and one that we want to incentivize, and that's fine. I don't think that, you know, lots of, you know, lots of climate interventions are, are things that we, that we want to encourage, right? And so and I, we might at some point want to encourage deployment of high leverage solar radiation management. I'm, you know, I'm agnostic about whether we're ever going to want to actually deploy it. I don't think we should have, uh, we should try to ban it permanently, certainly. But, but I think you can have different governance approaches and different governance tools while treating them all as different interventions that just have different features. Okay. So if you've got a governance process which can deal with the replacement of coal fired power stations with solar farms and it can also deal with marine cloud brightening which lasts three days how can it really usefully encompass such a large range of activities that is so different internally because 
I can't think of an organizational structure which could resolve anything useful that was based on such a broad range of activities that we're all trying to be regulated. How do you see this being applied in practice? Well, so like I said, I think there needs to be so. So right now we have a you know a, a UN framework convention process that's based just around greenhouse gas emissions. It's sort of ambiguous how how forestry fits in there because it has you know because uh, you know forestry interventions have both effects on the albedo and and effects on on greenhouse you know greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere, both both in terms of, of sinks and, and and emissions when you have deforestation and so. We have this weird situation where we are only paying attention in this governance framework that exists to the greenhouse gas or the carbon cycle effects, not the other effects of the actions we're taking. And so I think that's causing all kinds of problems. And so I think I think you just want want a governance framework that 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 has has incentive structures that 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 take on board what all the effects of of interventions are going to be. And 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 there's going to need to be some deliberation. I don't want to I don't want to prejudge those processes to how how we value short duration interventions. Right. If they're otherwise low risk. Right. Do we you know, you know, I have some views on, on how to value sort of future and present benefits. But I think, you know, the point of this paper is to, is to set out a basic framework. And so and so I want that framework to be useful to people that don't necessarily agree with me on the on the sort of object level governance question. Okay, well, let me explain why I think that your framework makes things more complicated and not less so. Okay. so when, when I'm dealing with something like stratospheric sulfur aerosols, the, what you might kind of crudely group as the sort of NIMBY aspects are pretty limited because it's a global intervention and it can be operated, you know, perhaps from new airports or maybe from existing airports. But the neighborliness of solar geoengineering is not really a big deal. They're, might be, you know, 10 or so communities around the world that are affected by solar geoengineering in practical terms, in terms mm-hmm. of the flights that are leaving the airbase, right? But the neighborliness aspects beyond that are pretty small, okay? Now, there's uh, for st- stuff like um, solar farms or tree planting, then the neighborliness aspects are absolutely huge. If you've got a farm or some rangelands where your ancestors have been hunting elk for the last thousand years or so and then somebody comes along and taps you on the shoulder one day and says well actually if you could please leave and take your elk hunting ways with you we're going to dig up your rangelands and plant trees on them and you might be less than impressed by that likewise if you've got a um you live in a national park and someone wants to come along and build solar farms all over the place you're you're not going to necessarily be chuffed about that but also on the flip side going to be closing down a coal-fired power station which is going to affect people's air pollution so there are you know pros and cons from Mm -hmm. neighborliness aspects now they they, those are huge in particularly nature-based solutions and there's a huge amount of protest that that's been around the cop conference currently continuing which shows just how controversial these neighborliness aspects are and how potentially a flashpoint for exploitation they might be. And so a, a framework which is designed to govern everything from marine cloud brightening to the planting of trees seems to me to be so general and so unwieldy that I can't really see 
how it could be useful. So what I would say about that is, is I think most of these sort of NIMBY issues that you're raising, I would I would consider issues of domestic law and governance. And so if if there's issues around citing, you know, citing a solar farm because there's local resistance, you know, that's going to be that's going to be a domestic and often even a subnational governance question that I'm not really addressing in this in this particular uh, article. I dealt with some of those issues in in prior work, but I think in terms of what a global governance framework, you know, you know, the international level for for governance of climate interventions is going to care about the kind of effects that cross borders. Now, obviously, there can be some, you know, if you're doing something right near a border, there can be effect on neighboring countries. But for the most part, what we care about are the the, the more dispersed effects, right? And those can be those can be either regional or global, right? But but all of these interventions in some way or another do have global effects. And so I think those are what the, the, the global governance framework uh, should be primarily focused on. And and again, just because they're all sort of under the same governance umbrella, it doesn't mean they all have to be treated the same. So I think you can still have deliberations around sort of what what incentives you want to create for for different countries, you know, whether it's in terms of crediting that toward meeting their climate commitments or or restrictions on on, on interventions that are more dangerous. I, again, I think that's that's open for debate. I don't want to prejudge that process, but I think there is a lot of benefit from all having them under the same governance umbrella, both because it's not really viable to draw the kind of distinctions that people want to between geoengineering and other interventions, and there's going to be interest in having having more influence over over the governance of you know the sort of timing and degree and and conditions under which you know something like high leverage solar radiation management something like stratospheric aerosol injection would be deployed countries are going to want going to want influence over that and that that influence can be used as a lever to motivate decarbonization or to motivate more benign climate interventions in the in the nearer term well let me challenge that because i disagree with you on significant parts of that so if you've got something like ocean alkalinity enhancement which could be done uh, outside of a national jurisdiction could be done in the open seas then there might be neighborliness implications of that uh, for uh, say fishing communities that couldn't fish in the waters that were being treated as they were being treated or they couldn't fish in those waters on a longer term basis due to changes in the ecosystem that may, in theory, be induced, then that wouldn't come under national law if it's done on the high seas. But it would never it wouldn't still be a neighborliness aspect. And you're also implying that a lot of these neighborliness issues are pretty small scale. But if you've got a situation where you've got a poor country with a lot of rangelands or a lot of depleted forests, that people might want to get their hands on the carbon benefits, right? Then conceivably, you could have something which is very prone to corruption. It's a very sort of extractive model, which is perhaps not terribly different from how colonialism might have worked for extractive industry. So you invade someone's country, take it over, call it your own, and then you go about drilling for their oil or mining their diamonds or whatever. I mean, just to clarify, I'm, I'm not one of these kind of uh, performative col- colonialism bashers that I see a lot in academia. I think we have to interpret colonialism in a more nuanced fashion than it's often considered. But 
I, I think there are certainly parallels between large-scale nature-based solutions and colonialism. And I'm not sure your model, in the way that you're describing it, can usefully address those because the NIMBY concerns, as you mentioned, are not quite so small scale as you perhaps portray. Right. So I think there's sort of two different issues there. So first, you're talking about sort of the, the open ocean uh, deployment of certain interventions that are going to have have effects on neighboring countries. I think that's certainly something that the global governance uh, framework should take on board. That's that's you know one of the features of some of these interventions that they have you know semi-localized or regionalized impacts that that it might be negative, and that that that's a reason that that we should treat those as less benign. But again, I think that's that's a matter of sort of taking on board where they fall along along these three dimensions, not I don't think that's a reason for treating them as a separate, you know, sort of governance silo. In terms of, you know, these sort of, you know, neo-colonial issues, I think that's maybe outside the, the scope of what I'm taking on here. But if you want my off-the-cuff response to that, I would say that, you know, you've got a problem there of, you know, of of maybe ineffective governance at or inadequate governance at the you know at the national or subnational level in the, in the country you know you know as a matter of sovereignty these countries could refuse you know for you know it's not imposed colonialism in the sense that you know colonialism was violently imposed in in prior centuries it's 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 with the cooperation in most cases of the the national government now you might say those national governments are not adequately representative of the interests of their citizens, that they're corrupt in various ways. I think that's a that's a real problem. I'm not an expert on how to deal with that. There might be some reason that we that as a you know at, from a global perspective, we would want to restrict the kinds of ways or or or, or, or the, the kinds of interventions that can be done in countries where we think there's corruption issues, but but there's there's a there's a ring of paternalism to that as well. So I, I don't have a fully thought out answer to how to deal with when you're when, you, when there's reason to suspect that the, you know, we, we have this kind of issue, you know, with, with global, with, you know, with, with, with humanitarian aid, when you, when you've got a corrupt government, there's always problems with, with inner, with implementing sort of international policies when you have, when you're not totally, you know, prepared to trust the governments you're dealing with. I don't, I don't think that I have an answer to that, or that's really, I think that really falls outside the scope of what I'm trying to do with this paper. Well, let me challenge that because I, really quite robustly disagree with that appraisal. So firstly, I think that, yes, it is right to say that some countries have weaker governance or less representative governance than others. But I think it's also important to recognise that the external factors that a country faces has a material effect on its governance. Now, if one of the things that is a, a well-understood concept is the idea of resource curse. So countries get less democratic, less free, more oppressed, and sometimes poorer if they are well endowed with resources. Because mm -hmm. the presence of those resources allows countries to look to external funders and not to their own population for their mm -hmm. legitimacy and funding, right? And so you can have this negative correlation between endowment and quality of life, where the, uh, the existence of a external economic system which fosters the extraction of a resource even if it's you know, carbon dioxide removal not necessarily extractive but this purpose we can discuss it as if it's an extractive industry the parallels are fairly obvious in that regard right but that that bad governance can be caused now the other aspect of this which is 
really challenging to swallow is the idea that these governments, um, even a legitimate government, would be acting in a situation where it's free to take decisions that it might like to take. So, for example, the government might uh, want to develop a whole bunch of indigenous industries, for example, I don't know, semiconductors or agriculture or whatever, but may come under significant pressure from the international community to instead utilise its nature-based potential to solve problems external to its borders. So you might, for example, have a country which has got a lot of opportunity for mangrove swamp regeneration, and they might say, well, actually, you know, these mangroves have been gone for quite a long time now. We'd like to set up some shrimp farms or some marinas to diversify our economy. And then you get some people from a highly polluting company, uh, country halfway across the world coming to them and saying, well, actually, no, you can't really do that. We're going to need these mangroves. And you are then kind of in hoc to the, to the countries uh, that are setting the economic process. And you look at the way that you get states which have become heavily dependent on their colonial counterparties. So, for example, uh, the tea plantations in India, I think that India was for a large part of its history run by a British company. I, I can't remember the name of it. It's a British India company. I can't, I can't recall. And then you've got other more modern examples where agricultural plantations have been essentially dominating the economy of Central America. Caribbean or South American countries. You know, this can even happen inadvertently. So you've got countries like Mexico, which have been forced into a position of being almost a failed state by the demands of US drug consumers. Now, that is um, not US government policy, but that economic system still exists and still has a very material effect on your life in Mexico. You know, a lot of towns in Mexico are essentially the governance systems that exist in those places are extensions of narco-capitalists, right? They're not really within the remit of the state. And that is sort of product of the economic system. And I don't think it would require too much cynicism to think about how that might recur in a system that is built around carbon dioxide removal. And I wonder if you comment on whether your framework is perhaps vulnerable to that. It'll so be naive. I don't think it's any more or less vulnerable to it than a siloed system, right? So we we right now have carbon trading that, you know, in principle would accommodate negative emissions and in some in some cases does, at least with regard to, you know, forestry mostly or other nature-based solutions. It's unclear to me why siloing off, um, you know, an arbitrary geoengineering category would solve that problem. I think solutions may be needed to that problem. Again, I, I don't want to claim expertise on how to solve that problem. I do think it's at least in part a domestic governance issue. Um, so you, you mentioned like the resource curse. I think if you have, you know, a very stable, responsive government, you know, look at Norway, right? You, you, the countries are able to deal with having resources and, you know, they have a sovereign wealth fund. They still have, you know, they still invest in their population, right? They're, they're, I'm not saying it's, it's not hard for countries starting from a lower stage of development to execute that. I'm just saying that, uh, that, it's not, you know, there there is a degree in which in which you know these aren't. It's not old style colonialism in which you know it's at the point of a gun. Countries are being forced to do things. They're they're engaging in at least quasi voluntary transactions. And I think you know 
how they're compensated. Most, most old-star colonialism wasn't at the point of a gun. I mean, you, you, this is one of the things that most frustrates me about, about colonialism and, and the derision of colonialism in modern literature is it, it fails to understand the nuance. I mean, most of the... Uh, I mean, the colonization of Africa is perhaps more brutally enacted. But certainly the colonization of the Americas, a lot of the uh, influence was not by di- the direct infliction of violence on the population. There was obviously very significant violence, but much of the damage was caused by other si- situations where you've got things like the, the enclosure of rangelands that native people had used to their grazing animals, You've got situations where um, epidemic diseases were introduced into populations that had no immunity to them. Most of the most of the killing in in North America was not done. Individual pointed deliberate acts of targeted violence against a single individual. It was done in much more um, uh, diffuse ways. Introduction of disease, reduction of food sources, and that was undoubtedly colonialism. These places were called colonies. Now, let me let me come back to. I would like you to address that, but I did want to address something else you said earlier. Talking about a siloed system. Now, principal innovation step that you're bringing here is that you're creating a three D surface that you are using as a way of creating a a unifying governance framework, which is useful to consider a range of different uh, challenges and situations and circumstances and technologies within an overarching framework. And I find that problematic because there is no continuum, right? What we have is a discrete landscape of technologies, which may vary according to your dimension. So, for example, plowing straw into soil uh, causes it to last in the environment for an amount of time, whereas turning that straw into biochar and then storing it in the soil la- causes it to last for a great deal longer. Okay, so there are there are these spectra of uh, duration and governance, but my my concern is that what makes these technologies governable is not their position on such a spectrum, but they have for a wide variety of other reasons commonalities such as for example you know are there crops that someone tends to or are they something which is a primarily technological system those kind of things now by attempting to take this discretized landscape and render it instead as a continuum you create a false understanding of governance which in my view is has as much potential to be unhelpful as it does to be helpful. Now, that's not wanting to chuck the baby out of the bathwater with the bathwater. I think what you're doing has merit, is useful, but I think the idea of presenting it as some kind of governance panacea framework uh, very much detracts from the idea that a lot of this is actually very highly discretized and there is therefore not the opportunity to create this continual landscape where you can usefully consider all these technologies to be kind of thing all alike that's my concern here oh i'm not saying they're all alike i'm definitely not saying they're all alike what i'm saying is that there isn't a sharp boundary so so if you think if you think that that is discrete what's geoengineering and what's not 
I'd be curious what you think about some interventions that I see as not obviously. So, so would you consider white roof to be to be a geoengineering? Well, no, I wouldn't consider it to be geoengineering in practical terms because it doesn't have the capacity to make a meaningful change to the the so whole Earth's radiation budget. Pardon? Because it's low leverage, you're saying? Well, no, because of the capacity. It, it's not geoengineering because it doesn't have the opportunity to make um, a change to the entire global radiation budget in a way that any of the geoengineering approaches do. Now, you might say, well, isn't it just like a small amount of geoengineering? And I'd say, well, you know, not really, because even if you did a small amount of solar radiation management and a large amount of white roofs, you'd still not get yourself to the same position that you would be getting to if you did, you know, scale, you'll always have that problem of leverage, your capacity. You're never going to be able to do the same thing with white roofs as you could do with solar radiation management, right? I, why not? I mean, I, they have different durations. Well, there aren't enough roofs to change the climate. It doesn't make I any mean, sense. It, there's a, you know, a certain amount of, of, of SO2 in the atmosphere, uh, in, the, in the stratosphere, would 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 match that in terms of magnitude. Now, it would have a different duration pattern. It would have other differences in terms of, of how, you know, of the geographic concentration. There would be differences. And I, I agree with that. But I think that's just to say, so, okay, let's take another one. If, if we were to cut down all the forests in the world, would that be geoengineering? Well, it, to some extent, it'd be a matter of intent. But um, if you were to do it to geoengineer, then yes, I think it would. But I think How it's, would you know I mean, when you're doing it to geoengineer? Well, I think if people were doing something like that, where there's such a high degree of economic activity, then intent becomes obvious. I mean, there's no way that a single individual could go and do something like that where you'd have any speculation about what their intent might do, you know. You know, if I shoot someone, you don't know whether I intend to shoot over their head. But why do we reckless. care about intent? Why should well, governments it, care about intent? Well, because if you're chopping down all the trees in the world to grow more crops, then that's a very different matter to if you're chopping down all the trees in the world because you want to change the climate. You know, it's a matter of policy. I mean, my, my concern here is you're, you're, I think you know why intent matters, but I think you're playing intellectual games to to avoid discretizing this space where oh, no, I, discretization I, is is kind of obvious really no i think if you're if you're another if you're a country that is, is not the country where the forest is being cut down what you care about are the the physical impacts on your environment that are going to result from the intervention you don't care about about whether whether someone's cutting down a tree or burning coal or whatever for their own economic reasons or they're doing it to have a deliberate impact on the climate you care about what the the physical impacts that you're going to experience are and the economic impacts that you're going to experience. Yeah, but um, governance, but governance doesn't work in that way, does it? I mean, we govern, we govern intent, mens rea matters. So, you know, if I'm, if I'm shooting a pigeon and you happen to walk past the pigeon and I shoot you, then I might be convicted of reckless endangerment or careless handling of a weapon or whatever wording is given to that in the law of the country in which that uh, crime occurs, but it's not the same as murdering something. So, so I think we're in term we're we're sort of equivocating on the difference between deliberateness and intent. So so when you burn coal, you're intentionally doing it. You know what the harms it's going to create are. Now the reason you're doing it is not to generate the greenhouse gas emissions in the particular matter and whether whatever other pollution you're doing. The reason you're doing it is to you know to generate electricity or whatever. It has certain economic benefits. But you're doing it intentionally, knowing it will create those harms. It's hard to 
to say how that's fundamentally different from an intervention that's intended to bring about a certain climate effect. Well, what I'm saying is that the, the intent, I think intent does matter. And I think that if people were, let's say, for example, the bunker fuel regulations are where there's a, a much, uh, that, that overlap is much more relevant, where you've got people who are getting rid of sulfur from bunker fuels because they want to have a human health benefit, but there's become a climate cost as a result, right? So I think that that, that distinction there is is more meaningful where you've got this this issue with uh, the bunker fuel cleanup. But the point that I'm making more broadly is that, well, there are several. So I think firstly, intent or intentionality or deliberateness does matter. You know, why, why an action is carried out, certainly on a societal level, really does matter from a governance point of view. Now, working out what's in somebody's head is very difficult and, and govern, governing someone's intentions as an individual is difficult. But when a society or an organisation or institution uh, works in concert as a series of individuals to create an outcome, then we can be very clear about why these things are done. Okay, because there's minutes of meetings and things like that. Right mm -hmm. now, I'm not saying that they're necessarily a faultless record and people can have hidden motives, both stated but unrecorded and all ones that are perhaps in entirely unconscious and they're unaware of. Them. Um, so that, you know, that, that that's certainly feasible. But the larger an organization is and the more embedded in society becomes, the the, the less opportunity there is for people to do things from unconscious motivations right or, or without recording their their intent you know we have to be realistic about these things that you know people do write down why they do things they pay for things they have economic systems that foster certain types of behavior and disincentivize others so you know deliberateness does matter and it is in most cases or in many cases quite obvious the other thing that i have a problem with in terms of your governance framework is i think that there are yes there are overlaps and there are continua within the um space that you're working in in that you have you know long acting solar radiation management might overlap to an extent with short acting greenhouse gas removal okay but it doesn't mean that greenhouse gas removal and um and solar radiation management can therefore usefully be governed together it'd be like trying to govern all yellow things in a particular way it'd just be nonsensical you know we don't try and govern everything that's yellow or everything that's spotty in the same way, you know? I'm not saying we should govern them in the same way. No, I no, I understand. I understand you're not saying that they should govern in the same way. What you're saying is that the framework can be usefully applied. And what I'm saying is that you're, you're grouping uh, these different technologies and different processes in a way which is potentially interesting and, and has some benefits and offers some insights. But what I don't think it does is... I don't think it necessarily offers as anything which is more helpful than saying, you know, we're going to, vodka is a clear liquid and so is a vaccine and therefore we're going to govern all clear liquids the same. You know, I, I think that it really falls into the trap of, of identifying commonalities and then trying to leverage them for governance in a way which, you know, frankly, they're not useful for governance. And, and I wanted you to address that concern. Yeah, so I think these there are lots of dimensions on which these interventions vary. I picked out the three that I think are most relevant to governance. I think we do care about the differences in the climatic impact of of of, of you know of of uh, changing the the you know the reflectivity of the of the Earth's surface versus changing how much heat is released back onto space. Those do have a different pattern 
of of climate impacts in terms of precipitation versus temperature. I think we really do care about that. I think we care about how long these interventions last and we, and we care about how, how highly leveraged they are because leverage both has benefits and risks. And so I think those are the, th the things that like when, when, you're, when you're thinking about, I'm sitting in country X and, I, and, 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 and what, how do I feel about what's happening in country Y? Those are the features of the interventions that they're doing that I care about. And so we should have a governance system that acknowledges that. Well, yeah, you're, you're kind of right to an extent. And I think that they, they are things that people care about. But I've also listed and got into some depth about other things that people care about, such as transboundary effects, such as rights and justice implications, the, you know, the exportability of the economic system which fosters these activities, and all of which can, can offer additional dimensions which help to define this space in a, a different or complementary way or, or a way which is applicable to certain technologies and not others. And I think the danger of your framework is to say it is in its very comprehensiveness. I mean, you've created something which, is, which aims to be comprehensive and is so. And I think that in doing so, you've created a governance system which is designed, conceived in a manner so as to become almost like a governance of everything. And in the same way that you wouldn't govern all boys in the same way or all animals in the same way, I think your framework is as unhelpful in some ways as something which tries to govern a wild yeah. lion in the same way as a tame house cat. They so just, let me make they, a clarification that I think might be useful here. When I say it's a unified governance framework, I do think it's a unified climate governance framework. And so the three dimensions that I'm talking about and the, the three features of, of, the, of these inter interventions are all features of what the climate impacts are. Now, if there are non-climate impacts that we care about of these interventions, I do think it's appropriate to have other governance tools to address them. So if you've got these local corruption issues, if you've got you know, local transboundary environmental problems, I think those are all things that we have other law and policy instruments to deal with. And I don't need my framework to address those. What I'm saying is when we're governing these interventions qua climate, right? We want to do that all under one umbrella. Does that, does that help clarify matters for you? Well, yes and no. I mean, the thing is that by creating a unified climate governance framework, you're implying that there are a set of value systems and processes relevant to climate, which then become a, a set of useful... I mean, I'm not saying that you can just go and steal someone's machine tools and then use them to make a carbon dioxide removal machine and i'm expecting your system to encompass that because you know we're assuming a basic legal framework property rights you know an economic system mm -hmm. that that is that is all encompassing that doesn't get breached by our climate government but where i think this is problematic is that there are particular issues as as we described of you know pertaining to things like um, uh, fisheries or the rights of indigenous people, which are knotty problems at the best of time and have such a crossover with so many dimensions of CDR that to create a governance framework which is purported to address climate governance but leaves these gaps is, in my view, worryingly simplistic. It's, it's very one-size-fits-all. And my point is that the uh, the state space you're trying to govern is just not amenable to a one-size-fits-all governance system. Now, I understand what you're saying, that you are saying, well, look, we're going to govern the high-leverage activities in a different way to the low-leverage activities. But what I'm saying is 
useful counterpoint, and this is track from the usefulness of your paper. I think that there is value, okay? But what I'm saying is that the nature of the, the governance challenges are, are fundamentally different and very common within, say, nature-based solutions and very different in themselves from the governance challenges associated with, for example, SAI. Now, that's not to say that your framework doesn't offer some value in considering that, but I think to uh, the way I the way I think this framework could be usefully used is to place a range of technologies onto that framework, okay, and then create kind of voxels within that framework. So you've got this three D space, so you chop it up into little cubes and say, well, look, this technology falls into you know cube one three one, and therefore what we know about cube one three one is that the following things tend to be important in Q131, mm-hmm. right? Now, that, that's very different from, from saying that we're going to, you know, create a, a governance continuum. What we're trying to do is to, uh, is to have a, a sort of a pixelated view of, or, or, or more formally voxelated because it's three dimensions. But when you kind of voxelate the, the system that you're describing, you're quantizing it, and then you're applying within those quanta different governance systems and structures mm-hmm. and looking for different issues. That's when I think it becomes a lot more useful. Where, where I think, I mean, this, it really sets my teeth on edge sometimes when you're describing it because it sounds just so awfully tech bro to come up with this, this system, which is this kind of all seeing eye, this all thinking brain, which can govern the whole world. And it seems to discard a lot of the, the subtlety and nuance and and the and not recognize the clash of value framing. So while yeah. planting trees on what used to be rangelands might be very useful and important to people looking ways of offsetting their carbon impact in New York, it might be very, very annoying to someone whose grandfather and their grandfather and their grandfather have been driving herds of elk across this land yeah. for many, many, many generations. That's where I have a problem with what you. Okay, so let me think. Think distinctions you're drawing between carbon dioxide removal and and you know certain forms of solar radiation management are useful here to illustrate the point I'm trying to make. So yeah, you're saying the implications, the governance implications for something like stratospheric aerosol injection are different from nature-based solutions to carbon dioxide removal, and I think that's true, and I think that. They should be governed differently. But I also think within carbon dioxide removal, you can't treat that as one silo that's all the same, right? So so something like direct air capture, right, which has a much different sort of, you know, footprint on the land, right, is going to be very different from, from, some, from nature-based solutions. It isn't going to raise all the questions you're raising. So I think... I don't disagree with you at all. And what you're basically saying is that you can't just group, you, know, you can't simplify governance into two group crude grouped categories. And, and I've not, I don't disagree with that point. And I've, I've never argued. So, so the, what I'm saying is the same critique that you're leveling at my framework would be leveled at an attempt to unify frame, not just governance of, of geoengineering as a category, but the governance of CDR. Because even within CDR, you've got, you've got, you've got variation along, along the dimensions you're talking about, right? In terms of, in terms of these neighborliness issues, as you described them. And, 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 and there's other concerns that fall into my framework. Right. And so what I'm what I'm saying is what I'm criticizing is not so much the separation between different forms of of CDR or even between between carbon dioxide removal and solar radiation management. I think there's important distinctions there. 
What I'm really criticizing is the separation between geoengineering as a category, including, you know, both solar radiation management and carbon dioxide removal from, you know, what people think of as conventional mitigation. And I don't think there's a sharp line to be drawn between those. And I think we do need to have those under the same broad governance umbrella. Now, again, we're going to have different governance tools that we apply based on where interventions fall on each of these dimensions. But I think trying to separate this out as some exotic new thing when we've been intervening on the climate in different ways for centuries is not a useful thing to do. Well, let me give you examples of where I think that your criticism or comment there is some, somewhat valid. So, for example, if I've got a dairy barn and then I paint it with photocatalytic paint, then it will get rid of some of the methane coming from the dairy barn. Now, if I then take a photocatalytic paint and then paint it on my fence, my neighbor has got a dairy barn, then is that geoengineering or is that, is that something which is more akin to CCS? You know, I get that there are these gray areas where it's not completely obvious which box various things should fit into. So I'm not trying to create a situation where we are able to draw a completely a bright line between mitigation and geoengineering. But I think it's also useful to bear in mind that we don't have these kind of infinite continua between all technology. And what we have is a, a set of technologies. You know, as new technologies are developed, then this might be proven wrong. But for now, we have direct air capture, which is a thing. We have enhanced weathering, which is a thing. We have nature-based solutions, which are a thing. We have marine cloud brightening and stratospheric aerosol injection, which are, again, things. Now, there are, there are, there are some commonalities. You know, marine cloud brightening is very quick. Um, but solar geoengineering, stratospheric aerosols is a bit slower and starts to overlap with some greenhouse gas removal. So I get that there are ways in which these technologies overlap. But for my central point, the central criticism I'm making of what you're doing is that it's actually much more useful to, to silo and, and discretize these technologies. Say, so, well, look, you know, what problems pertain to nature-based solutions? Or what problems pertain to biochar? Because the technology is a better way of grouping these things than some kind of imaginary voxel that you might draw around it in this very abstract state space. Now, I get the value of your system for identifying some commonalities between the different technologies as they start to touch each other on one of your axes. So that's, that's useful. But where I have a big problem with what you're doing is that the idea that this governance framework is, has primacy. It starts to be seen as or be treated as being more important than the finesse and subtlety and discretization exists around each technology. Now, where, where I think it's useful is if you can put comparable technologies into a voxel, a kind of unit of state space where similar rules might apply to uh, things which are quite different technologies and might look, and diff, look different and smell different and cost different amounts, but have a lot of the same governance challenges. I think that's pretty useful. But where we start to drift apart, I think, is where we say, well, yes, these things are kind of different in terms of leverage or whatever, but they fall on a spectrum. And so it's all really the same thing in a way. That's mm -hmm. where I have a problem because I, yeah. I, I just think that the discretization is so much more important and so much more practically applicable than uh -huh. any, any attempt to, to, to cast these technologies and processes on a continuum tends to just 
smooth out differences that are so yeah. important for government. That's where yeah. my problem lies. So I, I think I think we might be talking past each other here, and it might be useful to think about how how your your points about the about discrete technologies would apply to to mitigation, right? So there's a number of 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 different technologies we, we use to decarbonize our economies, right? So from from electric vehicles to to different forms of, of clean power. So there's nuclear power. There's specific rules we have around nuclear plants, right? And and so there's all kinds of different issues we have. But at a global level, what we talk about is mostly is how much greenhouse gases are you emitting, right? And and that's what the global governance is framed is based around. And and there are all kinds of, of challenges with different technologies, and those have all kinds of specific technology, specific regulations. And I think that's appropriate to have for different interventions that, that might fall under what's commonly called geoengineering. And I, I don't think having different treatment of different technologies in that sense is inappropriate. What I do think is inappropriate is, ha- is, is pretending that there's this separate silo. And again, not between specific technologies, but between the, what, you know, what we think of as these exotic geoengineering technologies and the sort of normal stuff that we've been doing for, for, you know, for a long time. That's either, that's either emitting greenhouse gases or now that is trying to mitigate those emissions. Right. I take your point, that. but let me explain why I don't agree with what you've just said. So you're basically saying that the international community has got a set of agreements around uh, climate, which is based around the, um, uh, the existence of targets around greenhouse gas emissions. Now, that's undeniably true, but doesn't mean that there aren't also lots of sub targets and issues which are raised by that same international community, which applies a much more discretized set of rules. So, for example, you've got a whole bunch of treatments about a land use uh, issue, such as the RED initiative, uh, which aims to uh, manage deforestation. You've got the issue of creating marine protected areas and national parks, which have you know, a climate influence, but are not necessarily climate policy. They will, they will be considered in, in amongst the climate governance approach, but they, that doesn't mean that the international community doesn't look at or care about other aspects of the governance of these land use aspects. And mm-hmm. then you've got issues of things like permanence. You know, if you're, if you're, emission, you're emitting, you know, you've got the Montreal Protocol, which, deli- which, which deals with CFCs, which, which have and, and short-lived climate forces, which are captured by the, the Montreal Pro- Protocol as well. So the international community is very much concerned by total greenhouse gas emissions, but certainly, certainly not to the exclusion of these many multifaceted, what you might deride as siloed approaches to dealing with all of these different problems. No, um, I, I again, I don't think that I'm deriding those at all. I think there are other problems in the world besides climate change, and it's appropriate to have other law and governance instruments to deal with those. What I'm saying is when we're in the mode of governing climate, that we shouldn't treat uh, you know, these newfangled, you know, deliberate interventions as being fundamentally different than the kind of interventions we've been doing both, you know, both, you know, malign in terms of, you know, uh, you know, spewing greenhouse gas into the atmosphere and more benign attempts to, to mitigate that, um, that, that these new interventions are really of a piece with that. And yes, they do have important differences along these dimensions and important technological differences 
you know, individually, right? But that's true okay. among different mitigation technologies as well, right? Well, let's let let's try and find areas that we agree on here. Okay, okay. so I think we agree on the following aspect: so that your access, your axes, useful in that they that they technologies can be placed on these axes, so they 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 are definitional to some extent. You know, they they. They, by placing a technology on this axis and saying that this is the degree of leverage this technology has, that tells you something useful about this technology. Okay, so I agree with you on that point, right? I also agree with you that in some cases, but not all, there is a an overlap. So you don't have a, a clean distinction between the space occupied, at least on one axis, by one technology versus another technology. And we've repeatedly mentioned the idea of solar radiation management and by stratospheric aerosol injection overlapping some of your more responsive greenhouse gas removal or mitigation techniques you know they there is an overlap in that state space there we also agree that the governance framework that you're offering isn't designed to be completely comprehensive and we additionally agree that different voxels different volumes on your graph are uh, tend to be associated with different types of governance issues. So stopping Dr. Evil is not a big deal for low leverage activity. So you're worrying about Dr. Evil voxel doesn't tend to encompass things like direct air capture because Dr. Evil can't freeze the climate, uh, can't freeze the planet by pulling out all the CO2 from the air because even Dr. Evil hasn't got the money. Okay. So we agree on quite a lot. I think the area of disagreement that we've got is to what extent this is seen as being canonical and overarching, you know, the final arbiter of truth. That's where <laughs> I think it's concerning. And even if you don't intend it to be used that way, I think by offering this all-encompassing definition, it has the capacity to overly simplify a complex system in a manner which tends to reduce not enhance our ability to see what's important okay so you know governing crops and grow, governing wild trees yeah they're all plants but they're not the same thing from a governance point of view and we don't need to view them all as being the same thing in order to usefully govern them and to, to see them all as being plants doesn't necessarily help us govern as any govern them any better now the question that comes from this is Considering what we agree and disagree on, I would like to understand more about how you view this work as being practically applicable. What should I, as somebody who is either a scholar or a lawmaker or you know, a corporate purchaser of carbon services or geoengineering services, what should I do with the information with which you've presented? Right. So I think uh, it's, most, it's most relevant to policymakers that are focused on, on building you know this this global governance regime, and what they what they should do is is stop treating geoengineering like this separate thing. So we've got this UN framework convention process where we try to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and then we've got this other thing we've got to figure out how to govern. And instead, we should we should have you know we we should integrate the the treatment of these other interventions into the system that we use you know i have lots of criticisms of the you know the pledge and review framework and, and the system that, that we currently have for mitigation but whatever form that system takes should be more capacious it should take on board these other interventions and we should have a debate about how we want to regulate them and and some of them might be restricted in various ways 
Others might be in sort of an intermediate category. Others might be one we want to actively promote. Certainly, you know, lots of these more benign interventions are things we want to actively promote. And there should be there should be linkage between the governance of them such that, you know, countries that 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 overperform in terms of, of of these more benign interventions in terms of, you know, decarbonizing their economies are going to have more influence over when. And if these more controversial interventions like stratospheric aerosol injection are, are ever deployed. Well, it's interesting that you describe it in that manner, because one of the key things I picked up from what you just said was that you advocating using the framework in precisely the manner I'm concerned about it being used, in that you are using it to, to lump technologies and approaches together so that they're considered as being alike um, in, in a way which is inherently tending to uh, blur out the differences between them. And I, I think many people are concerned by the, by the problems that this is already creating. Let me give you an example. So some people talk about moral hazard, as I've mentioned on a number of occasions in this podcast. It's two things, not one. There's moral hazard, which is malfeasance, and morale hazard, which is recklessness. And most people, when they talk about moral hazard, actually mean morale hazard. But that's nevertheless a term which is used, in my view, incorrectly to describe what other people refer to as mitigation deterrence. By, by lumping carbon-affecting processes together, by considering them to be one thing, not two, we end up in this situation where people are doing crazy things like planting trees to deal with oil being dug out of the ground and burned, or we are pinning our hopes on the idea that we might have large-scale CDR in 2080 to get away from the fact that we are all driving around in unnecessarily large cars and living in poorly insulated homes in the 2020s. So that when we see this stuff applied in the real world, in, in, in precisely the ways that you're describing and apparently advocate, we see that where the opportunity is given to consider two things as being two different flavors of one thing, this tends to lead to more problems than it solves. Um, Considering that, I'd like to think about how, where you might find the least controversial or the most productive way of using your framework. Where does it generate fewest problems and give us most benefit in terms of its application? Okay, so I think there's there's two things I would name. One is in the treatment of you know what you might call a subset of nature-based solutions around forestry, right? So I I would want when you're when you're considering the greenhouse gas impacts of you know whether it's forest preservation or afforestation or 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 whatever you're also considering what the albedo effects are and i would want those to be considered together when we're when we're quantifying sort of how to value a forestry intervention there's not necessarily offer anything to that specific issue and i'll explain why i don't think that it's helpful the what's happening in your framework is you're you're saying well look, interventions fit into this continuum okay they occupy this voxel this 3D little bit of space okay but what you're saying there is forestry is actually forestry is two things not one it's a it's an albedo intervention probably one you don't want and it's a convention almost certainly one that you do want and depends on what forest you're talking about but yeah. I get it yeah but the one issue that you're talking about there about the albedo effects overlapping you're normally looking at northern forests in snow-covered regions. So you have evergreen dark forests where snow doesn't completely cover the trees 
in the winter season and therefore it leads to a significant darkening in spring, early melt and causes potentially a lot of problems. Now, yes, I agree with you. That's a problem. And yes, I agree with you. It's helpful to consider it when you're looking at expanding forestry and people are making a big fuss about that at the moment. Now, where I disagree with you is that your framework is helpful because your framework doesn't until, you know, up until this point in the conversation, you haven't said, well, actually, we need to break out all of the technologies into a number of having two or maybe more voxels per technology. You haven't said that up till now. Hey, so I and haven't used the word voxel in this whole conversation. That's been all you. <laughs> now, I understand that, but voxel isn't an invented term. No, I know. I'm just voxel. saying, what I'm saying is the benefit of my framework is that you, you're considering both the carbon cycle or greenhouse gas implications of an intervention and the albedo effects together under the same framework. And so naturally, you're going to be more inclined when you're evaluating a forestry intervention to consider both of those effects. Yeah, where I agree with you is that you can position the albedo effect in your state space using coordinate or voxel or whatever terminology you want. It's all the same thing, placing it in the state space, right? Um, And that you can then place two different aspects of an intervention in two different positions in your state space. Okay, but until you mentioned this forestry and the albedo effect associated with it, you hadn't suggested during this conversation that you envisaged these technologies being broken up into a series of first and second order effects, which would then be considered each separately within this state space. Now, I agree that the state space might be useful for analysing each of these effects, but I don't think it's it's a fundamental or inevitable consequence of your framework that it allows you to consider the different aspects of technologies, the different impacts of technologies on the climate system in an inherently more efficient fashion than is the case without it. And in fact, on the contrary, I actually think that it's potentially harmful. And, and bearing in mind that I've asked you to reach for the, for the you know, test your argument at its, at its highest. I've asked you to reach the thing where you do the best job okay and you've reached this example of albedo and forestry and you've done so on a background where you haven't uh, split up the technologies into multiple different coordinate positions or voxels in your oh. in your space and now hold on let me finish my point before you mm-hmm. my my argument is that your 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 framework is highly prone to misapplication and prone to doing as much harm as, as it is prone to doing good for in, in this particular example, where, you, where it's being taken at its highest, and you're saying, well, it has the capacity to subdivide. But in all previous instances in this conversation, you haven't made that subdivision. And my concern is that your framework and practical application will actually be used to simplify technology. To say, oh, well, actually, this technology sits at this position in this 3D space, and therefore, that's how we should think about it. Whereas my siloed approach to say, look, let's document each problem that exists within the set of technology and treat each technology has been discrete, non-overlapping. That's precisely where my system beats yours because uh-huh. you've got this unique problem of the albedo of northern forests where you can refer to this lookup table and say, ah, you know, we know what forestry, forestry is sui generis, it's a thing of its own kind. We've got a body of literature that documents all the problems of forestry. We go down and we look it up in this great tome of things that can go wrong with forests. And you're saying, oh no, the forestry's a continuum. It's, it's part of many different things that are a bit like it. And, and therefore, we're using this continuum to appraise it. And, uh-huh. and that's the problem 
that you know that I have is that state space actually causes the very problem that yeah. you're saying is the highest possible benefit of your system. So and I think it still falls down. I think we're using the term silo in two different ways. It's causing some confusion here. So I am not saying we should treat all these different interventions the same. What I'm saying is, is particularly there's this binary between conventional mitigation. There's debate about where exactly you draw the line about that. And, and our forestry, our, our forestry interventions mitigation, or are they something else? Right. But there, there's some line that we're drawing between that and these more exotic new engineering. And again, that's treated as one big silo. And I think you're advocating for maybe 50 different silos. And I think that in, in some sense, that's compatible with what I'm saying. I think there should be differentiation in the way these interventions are treated. I just think that if we're if we what we want is is a broader framework that allows us to consider all the the relevant implications of an intervention and to and to take on board the different impacts that it has along along these dimensions that we care about. And so I don't think it's a matter of of boring distinctions between different interventions. I think it's it's having a framework that allows you to take those on board in the most meaningful way and doesn't have doesn't force you into these sort of arbitrary decisions. Well, is it geoengineering? Is it not? If it's geoengineering, we focus on these aspects of it. If it's mitigation, we focus on these. So what, what, what we want is, is a framework that allows you to say, okay, this is this is an intervention that has different features and it has both a solar radiation management component through its effect on the albedo, and it also has carbon cycle effects, and that those are both, you might, they might have different durations, right? And, and so we want to, we want to be, we want a framework that can, that can take on board all those facets of an intervention. Yeah, I, I think where we agree on this is that the, there are, that the framework can usually be used to analyze different aspects of an intervention, like, for example, the albedo aspect being analyzed separately from the carbon removal aspect that I think is helpful. Whether people actually apply your framework in that way in practice is entirely questionable. Let me give you an example where I think there's a supporting piece of evidence that aids your case. That's a company which I think is called NCX, and they do delayed harvest from plantations. Uh, so they, they sell carbon credits based on leaving trees on plantations standing. Now. There are a lot of problems with that. We debated these in another podcast. Namely, if you're not considering the timber industry as a whole, it's not certain what your effect overall is. You might sure. just be displacing activity rather than delaying it or ending it or whatever, right? So there are big problems with the mm -hmm. way that this is applied. However, it's still a potentially interesting and useful way of thinking about an intervention because I think that it is right to say that that does occupy the kind of blurry boundary between the two bits of, um, uh, you know, you've got this mitigation aspect, which is you are deferring the release of the um, trees as labile carbon when they're decomposed and not a standing forest anymore. And then you've got the engineering aspect of it in that you are paying to make an intervention to adjust the climate. And is that geoengineering? Is it mitigation? Is it, you know, we're not sure, and maybe your state-based diagram is helpful in considering that. So I'm not trying to decry the potential for usefulness in what you're saying. All I'm saying is that I think the ham-fisted, inelegant, and then inexpert application of what you're doing has the potential to, to cause more harm than good by smoothing off the rough edges, which helps yeah, define so different I, techniques. I'm sure that's true, and I think that's true of any framework. Um, yeah. But what I'm pointing out is that then it's not just, you know, an analytical tool. I think it's a matter of you want, you know, at an institutional level, 
we, we do have, you know, I, I don't think we have the sort of 50 silos that you're asking for, but I do think we have, you know, two or three big silos, whether, well, you know, you know, maybe, maybe CDR, really certain forms of CDR and SRM are treated separately from each other, but they're both definitely isolated from conventional well, yeah, I mean, in a way that I don't think is helpful. You came up with the number 50, right? Not me. I mean, I, you were sure. I don't know school. what the number is. Maybe well, let, let, me, let, me, let me give you an example. Let me give you examples of things that I, how big my silos are. I put all marine cloud brightening in one silo. I put all service cloud thinning in one silo. I put all stratospheric sulfur aerosols in one silo. Okay. Mm-hmm. The, the caveat that if these techniques are used for wholly different applications other than the global climate. So if you're trying to steer or suppressed hurricanes and i would say that's a different thing even if it's using the same technology in the same way that you know a match and a flamethrower are not the same thing even though they're both used to starting fires you wouldn't apply the same regulation to those two things i'd say enhanced weathering is a thing i'd say biochar is a thing i'd say mm-hmm. um system restoration or extension is a thing i'd say direct air capture is a thing so you know we're only looking at around 10 buckets and and they tend to have a you know, a great deal of commonalities within the buckets and, you know, very much less without it. What I was trying to draw you on earlier, you didn't give me an answer because you... Well, 10 buckets within within geoengineering, but how are you, but you're going to need other buckets for what are, you know, for, for sub-technologies within conventional mitigation. Because the whole point I'm making is I don't want the separation between those two categories. I'm less focused okay. on separation among different geoengineering techniques. Okay, fine. Well, yeah, I mean, look, I would say, you know, broadly speaking, Wind and solar are separate things. They need to be governed in a different in a different way because one, you know, one's very has high footprint impacts on land, and the other one has much more concentrated amenity and ecosystem impacts on land rather than being more of a footprint thing, right? So, you know, I'm more I'm more uh, more interested in the distinction between different technology sets and learning about the ethical and governance and economic implications of technology sets rather than trying to place everything within some kind of continual state space. So that's where I, I, I think we get that. What I, want to, what I wanted to ask you earlier, and, and you went off on a reasonably interesting tangent, was the process of application. How do you think your, your methodology, your framework, can be helpfully applied in a way that allows us to do things that are interesting and useful with it? Because shown us some advantages and some disadvantages with the framework that come out during the conversation. But what I want to understand is not necessarily, you know, the best technology that can be distinguished with your with, with your approach, but in terms of a, an institutional enactment of it, in terms of treating your research as a technology in and of itself, how can it be used and applied in a way which protects us from the downsides and gives us the greatest possible upside. Who should be applying it? For what goal and what guardrails do we need? Great. So I think, you know, I, I think the sort of object level conclusions that I'm reaching here are not necessarily that different from, from others in the geoengineering governance community. I do think there's there's more reason to treat something like stratospheric aerosol injection, um, which has large potential benefits, but also significant risks as, as less benign and more subject to scrutiny um, and that and, and it sort of falls along sort of, you know, you might say the scarier side of all three dimensions, right? So it's solar radiation management, it's short duration and it's high leverage. And then for, for, for interventions that, that share, you know, maybe one or two of those features and, 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 not, and not the others, uh, you're going to need other approaches. Uh, but the other thing I would say 
is that is that having having all these interventions under one institutional umbrella gives a point I've been trying to make a couple of times here, which is you can have you know useful synergy between the governance of these different approaches. So if say, you know, if, if there's a presumption that there's going to need to be some sort of, you know, multilateral agreement of some kind for high leverage solar radiation management like stratospheric aerosol injection is deployed, I'm going to need some sort of voting rule for for how you make that decision uh, for, for how much to deploy under what circumstances, when, whether to, to deploy it all. And and you're going to need some, you know, there's likely to be disagreement between countries as, as to as to when and whether we should deploy those interventions and how much. And, uh, you know, we're, you're going to obviously, you know, basic features of national power are going to play a significant role in, in, in shaping, constraining in how much influence we can give to different countries. But within the constraints that that imposes, I think that there is there is scope to give more voice to countries that make more progress on deploying what I would describe as more benign interventions, more, you know, more pure mitigation interventions in the, in the short term. So, so you know, long duration, uh, low leverage greenhouse gas interventions in the short term. And, to, you know, we have precious few levers to motivate countries to, you know, to, 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 to decarbonize in a way that's consistent with, with the global interest and not just with their national interest. And I think this provides an important tool in that, in that, in that, in that tool basket. Okay, that's a very general and non-specific answer. What I would like to draw you on is, if you can name a person or an organisation or a process that you want to use to use your tool next week. I mean, that might be you know, the governance of opening new nuclear power stations in England, or it might be the governance of permits for pumping carbon dioxide down a well in Wyoming. But you know, who should use it and why? Drill well, down so again, to this is a framework level. for for global governance. So I, I think mostly bracketing issues of domestic regulation of these technologies and are saying focused on when you know when, when national governments you know draw up treaties and institutions govern the global climate system. So the most prominent being you know the UN framework convention process. I think that it should integrate consideration of these interventions you know that aren't you know, you know, the, the UN framework convention process is ba- is focused right now on, on six greenhouse gases, right? And I think that 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 narrow scope is unhelpful. And what, whether it's going to be through the UN framework convention process or we need a new process to replace it, I'm sort of agnostic about. But I think we should have one climate governance umbrella that doesn't have to be the only institution that exists, doesn't have to be all encompassing. But I think there needs to be one place where at least all these interventions are, are are considered, and where and where and where the different features of them can be can be can be regulated on their own terms, instead of trying to make an artificial separation. It's not like the um, negotiating parties at the COP agreement are going to pick up your paper and start using it straight away. So you see it cascading down through academia first. How do you think that scholars therefore might pick it up, and what other organisations, be they corporations or whatnot, might pick up your your work and start applying it in a way which sows the seeds of it being adopted as a way of thinking about these international sure. treaties and frameworks. Yeah. So I think I think it would be great if other academics would, would work within this framework, would would sort of put more work into fleshing out how global governance should account for each of these dimensions. I obviously don't think, you know, you, you know, one paper published by a junior junior scholar is gonna is gonna, you know, cause the the UN framework process to totally change on a dime, but I think it's part of, you know, it's sort of the first step 
know, I, I'm I'm one voice, you know, in 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 this process. But I want to nudge the process towards being more capacious and and toward you know, there's other obviously other people writing about linkages in different forms. You know, you know, Ted Parson has written about different forms of, of linkage of mitigation with with uh, with geoengineering i think we have we have slightly different ideas about how it should be implemented i would like to see more people writing about that and then yeah i think there would have to be more of a of a consensus in the in the scholar community or before policymakers going to act on that but i think that's the primary mechanism through which i i see my ideas being enacted if, if they are okay so thank you for that introduction i just want to ask you a few more questions before we wrap up so are you at uh, the University of Pennsylvania at the moment. Is that where yeah, you're studying? So I I am a professor, assistant professor at, at Turo University on Long Island. I actually just started there this fall. Okay, so you were you you were at Penn when? Yeah. So again, the, now you legal academic publishing is generally not at journals where where you teach. So I did do a visiting position last fall at Wyoming. This is my first tenure track position at, at, at Turo, but I've published in a number of different journals at different schools, none of which I've ever taught okay. at. So. Oh, right. Okay. So the, the pen was just the location of the journal. You have no association with the university. So no. I remember asking you whether you had to be at Penn, but I no. didn't know whether you were at Penn, but you clarified that no. you're not at Penn. Okay. And how does this fit into the broader canon of your work? Have you worked on a lot of other similar stuff, or is this a bit of a left field paper for you? How does it all fit together? So most of my work has been on climate change mitigation from different angles. This is my first paper that's taken on geoengineering. Um, so I've been, I have been largely focused on the sort of global governance aspects of climate change mitigation, though not exclusively. So it's it's consistent in that sense. So a lot of a lot of my work has been on you know criticism of the pledge and review model, the sort of voluntary approach to climate change mitigation. You know, advocating for for more robust tools that would make uh, decarbonization incentive compatible. And you know, I had a follow up uh, paper developing a metric for measuring the stringency of 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 a, na- of a of a country's or a jurisdiction's climate policy regime that I call the carbon price equivalent. And so you would you would you would basically the idea is that you would would look at a country's emissions over some period and ask what economy-wide carbon price, if implemented in an otherwise neutral policy environment, would have replicated their actual emissions performance. And that gives you sort of a measure of the stringency of a regime when, when, when you know, these, these policy regimes vary qualitatively across jurisdictions. And that can be used to implement some of these tools for coercive climate diplomacy that I talk about. I also have work that's, that's focused on a more subnational level. So Know, ways you know this is a global problem, but there there's often political will at the state and local level in the United States and at the subnational level in other countries. And so, what you know, sort of addressing what what useful tools do, are available to, to to subnational governments to take on take on this problem. And I sort of break it into you know what their what would their role be in sort of an ideal framework. And I, you know, if if we had ideal national and global policy, and that would be fairly limited, it would be what I call complementary policy. So, you know, say we had a globally harmonized carbon price, what would be left for you know, at at the optimal level? Somehow we agreed on that. What would be left for subnational governments to do, and there will be some things, because not everything is is going to be directly responsive to a carbon price, right? So, first of all, there might be other market failures, so you might want to have congestion pricing. Uh, even even though you know gas will be more expensive, we have a globally harmonized carbon price. Still not going to account for the sort of distinct externality that you create when you're taking up space, you know, scarce road space at peak times. 
There's also sort of local governance failures, like you might have too restrictive land use regulation that prevents, you know, the, the, the housing supply or from responding to, 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 to a carbon price. So people might want to live closer to transit or closer to work so they don't have to drive or, or they don't have to drive as much. But if, if land use regulation uh, is blocking that, then, then reform in that area might be useful. Um, so that that's sort of the sort of baseline that, that that's always going to be a role for for subnational governments. But then, you know, taking on the reality that we have inadequate national and global policy, there's sort of two more channels through which subnational policy can act, and I call those uh, substitution and promotion. So they can they can and and there's sort of trade offs between these. So they can either and even though even though many policies do both, but you can sort of try to step in and fill the shoes of what the national and the global process should be doing, or you can try to promote action at the national and global level. And, and so, you know, it's a substitution might be trying to directly, you know, reduce emissions in the most cost effective way and, and just focusing na- narrowly on that. Whereas if, if you're if you're more focused on promotion, you might try to experiment more to de- develop different policy models that could be adopted by other jurisdictions at the national level. You might want to build political constituencies that might be useful in later enacting national policy. And sort of which of those pathways you believe in is going to depend more on whether you what you think we ultimately need robust national global action or whether you think sort of t- a bottom up, you know, you know, bottom up uh, subnational action can get us a significant way uh, way there. I also have work on, uh, you know, discounting and how we should think about future benefits in, in cost benefit analysis. And that's more focused on the national level. Okay, that's quite the gist gallop there. You went through an awful lot of stuff very quickly. If you'd like to provide links to those additional papers, then we can, or it just Google's got a link to your old canon of work there, which I think you covered in that little uh, uh, spiel that you just gave us there. Uh, I uh, would have to go back and listen to that about five times before I could follow up with the arguments you're making within there, but I may well do that because uh, some of it was probably quite interesting. Uh, so... One thing I wanted to ask you about, we talked a little bit about the process for the law review, the kind of curious process that is quite unfamiliar, I guess, to most academics who publish outside of law. But I wanted to talk to you about the publication journey for your specific paper. Another thing is you haven't mentioned any co-authors or collaborators, so I don't know if you worked alone on this or whether there are other people involved. But if you could just talk to, to us about the crafting, how did, it, how did it come to be published? That'd be very helpful. Sure. So this, it was a solo authored paper. Again, this was my first foray into geoengineering. And so I spent a lot of time just sort of reading the literature. As I think I mentioned, there's no formal peer review in, in, you know, most U.S. law reviews, but I did send this paper out before I submitted for publication to, I think, basically everyone who cited it and some other people who work in the field. And and got feedback from a lot of them. Obviously, it's it's not like peer review in the sense that they can't reject my paper, they can't force me to change anything. But I did try to take that that feedback on board. But yeah, it is a it is a sole authored product. That's that it is what I think. Okay, so you don't have, have comments to come back, but which you can then use to amend the paper. But you don't actually have. So it's like it's almost like the equivalent of editorial decision on a normal journal. The editor would look at it and think, yeah, that's kind of interesting. I'll send that out for review. But then the second step where you get comments, you, you don't have to take on board those comments. The peer reviewers don't accept or reject your paper. They just give you advice on how to improve. Is that right? Or have I misunderstood right. that? So, so no and, and it's not something that I have to do at all. It's something that I wanted to do because, you know, I think it's good practice to, to get feedback from 
from other people in the field and to, to you know, to anticipate, you know, to, to be able to anticipate their counter arguments. Some of them are criticizing, some of them I'm, I'm endorsing their work, but in either case, I think it's, it's good to make, make sure I've understood their work. I'm not mischaracterizing it, but yeah, there's no, there's nothing that can force me to make any changes as a result of anything they say. That's just not how the, the law review publication process works, at least in the U.S. Okay, well, that's useful. It gives us an insight into the publication journey that you've gone on. I'm going to try and sum up how I feel about the paper, come to a conclusion. You know, I think it is a useful framework um, uh, for consideration, but I think a lot more thought and nuance needs to be given to the shortcomings of how it's likely to be applied. I think the, the guardrails against misuse should be internal to the paper and not relied on separately. I think that when I asked you to come up with your highest test for the paper, you came up with an example that was actually somewhat problematic and needed quite a lot of unpacking. And didn't your paper, as you originally described it, didn't contain the tools in order to appraise. So although I can't give you a peer-reviewed rejection because of the law uh, the law paper, I, I can be your pretend reviewer to this, your pretend and editorial decision. And I might think it's suitable for a lesser journey. I might give you some feedback as how to improve it. But I can't give you a formal rejection, unfortunately, as you've educated me today on the uh, rather curious world of uh, legal publication, which is uh, a new one on me and one I'll look out for in the future. But nevertheless, even though I can't offer you a formal reviewer to blueprint award uh, as we kick you out of our studio, hopefully you'll find our feedback useful and might be able to incorporate it into some future work. And it's very obvious from you going through your quite voluminous canon of work. There's a lot that we might bring you back on to talk to you about. And if I have a look through some of your papers and understand them, which is not necessarily the case, I don't understand everything. It's normally the borderline ones I bring on when I kind of half understand them and I like to talk about them. If I don't understand them at all, I don't normally bother. But ones that I half understand, I'll drag people onto the show give them a good going over and that might apply to some of your new stuff as well when I slow down your guest gallop to a third of normal speed and try and understand what you were saying to me. Uh, So you may well be back. Uh, But for now, thanks for coming on. Pleasure to talk to you. And I look forward to broadcasting your message loud and clear to the colonies and beyond. Thanks thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure.